You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. We want to wish you a very happy, on tomorrow, Reformation Day. That is tomorrow. Yes. October 31st has been hidden by um, the darkness of uh, a concept that is completely foreign to the ideologies of Christianity proper. However, what lay under that is the protesting document of 95 statements nailed to the door of the parish by the hand of Martin Luther or his um, uh, associate to um, to begin officially uh, what uh, years earlier John Huss, 100 years earlier, died for and many pre-reformers died for, and it was articulated in what we refer to as the 95 Theses. And so that will be the true celebratory moment and theme of tomorrow, October 31st. I'm going to dress as Martin Luther then. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a mighty fortress is our God. It's my favorite hymn. <laughs> uh, John, last week <clears throat> we had the privilege and pleasure to engage the text within the framework of Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And near the end of the program, you raised what I refer to as a Pandoric box, as it were. Refresh my memory because I have no recollection of what I said. (laughs) Namely, uh, you brought up the question, what about Elimelech's move um, from uh, the land of promise, Bethlehem, into the land of Moab, uh, from a place where there was no bread, the irony being Bait Lechem, right. a place where there was no bread in the house, to a place of compromise, sojourning there. And you brought up the issue of the suffering that would ensue upon his wife, upon his family, as it were. And, uh, and you asked the question, what about an individual in a patriarchal society um, um, in the book of Ruth, but in modern society who is um, suffering by means of association, Naomi, Ruth, Orpah, uh, and not necessarily suffering as a direct result of any sin, as it were? And does God, in fact, allow the believer outside of direct or indirect involvement in sin to undergo suffering for a greater purpose um, within the framework of his kingdom program? That's a good question. And and really, it, it's, um, it's not something that the text directly says, you know, here's the reason why this famine's coming, though we can infer, perhaps during the time of Judges, famine was because it was a punishment from God. But within this family, this uh, Elimelech, of course, is faced with um, the certainty or the um, uh, the famine and what to do when there's no bread. Um, he decides to take his family to, to Moab, which um, uh, 
previous patriarchs might have went to Egypt. But the question is, is uh, after he dies and after the sons die, which we will see, uh, see in a few minutes, um, Naomi is left with her, her daughters-in-law. And the question is, well, why is she suffering this? Is it something that she did? Is it something that her husband did? Is it something, you know, that she has to figure out what God wants? And what's interesting is, that, in fact, in the uh, in the verse where it says that Elimelech brings the family to uh, to Moab, it actually says that he brought that he went to Moab. And oh, by the way, his wife and kids came with him. In other words, it emphasizes his actions. Now, the question I uh, asked last week was because of that. Sometimes the the trials that people face in life are the direct result of their own action, and sometimes they're the recipient of somebody else's actions. And sometimes it's none of the above. Uh, you have the, the book of Job, where Job is suffering great loss and tragedy, and Job has no ideas of the conversations that are going on in heaven between God and Satan. Uh, and God is demonstrating and showing off his, his servant Job of, uh, because of his righteousness. Naomi is not privy to a conversation of, as such. And Naomi sort of represents a lot of us because we go through life and oftentimes we face trials. And sometimes we think, wow, why, why am I going through this? Gee whiz, God, where are you? And in fact, you have... Um, almost an absence of God, it seems like, in the first few verses. There's tragedy, there's great famine, there's great sorrow. And the question is, what, not only where is God in all this, but what do you do when it feels like th- that God is against you in such things? And Naomi, I think, is struggling with that because you'll see early in the story, the the the, the tragedies of her life have affected her, have made her bitter. Or she's, in one sense, has this perspective of God that God is totally against her. And she has no idea what God is really doing because she looks at her circumstances and concludes, well, because I'm experiencing this loss, it must mean that God is against me. And so what happens in life, it's hard not to do that. It's hard not to look at your circumstances and say, you know, I did something wrong. You have Job's friends who Job encountered great loss as well. And his friends who were supposed to comfort him uh, come in and start accusing him. You know, Job, you must have did something wrong because this is really only bad things only happen to bad people. But in reality, bad things happen to everybody. And it's what you do with those things and how you what your perspective of and how how do you understand God in the midst of that? Do you understand God to be one who prevents us from ever encountering problems? Or do you understand God as being the one who is with you in those problems? You know, the psalm says in Psalm 23, that the great shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. He takes me through, right, the, the valley of the shadow of death. If he weren't a great God and a great shepherd, it might say he takes me too to, through that valley, but no further because he's not able to handle that. It's oftentimes the presence of God that we don't see him, that he, he demonstrates how strong he is in being able to bring us through those times. And so in one sense, in trying to understand Naomi and what she's going through, we have to ask that question. I think that it's important <clears throat> to recognize in the framework of a biblical theology that suffering need not necessarily directly be as a result of an individual's involvement or participation in sin. Right. However, that being said, we must certainly admit the indirect facet of 
suffering's association with sin as a result of a Genesis 3 fallen world. Right. Wherein it is in fact important that we suffer, for if there is no suffering and all things are as all things were in an Edenic society, then we beg the question of whether or not God was being honest. Right. And we beg the question of our legitimate or authentic need for a savior, as it were. Um, however, there is an aspect of suffering that is essential for maturity. But I'd like to touch on something that's very interesting. I'd like to do what we find in um, a Latin form of argumentation in the New Testament, and that is uh, reductio ad absurdum, namely, that is reducing the concept to its logical, illogical conclusion. I did not bring my Oxford Dictionary with me today, <laughs> or my Latin Dictionary. <laughs> you are the best. In reducing a concept to its logical, illogical conclusion, if, in fact, we look at the children of Elimelech and Naomi, the sons um, that are presented in the Hebrew text as Vemachlan Kilion. Yes. So, so um, Machlan and Kilion. These sons are born in the land of promise. They are not, in fact, born in the land of Moab, in the land of compromise, in the land of the seed of the father where compromise was housed as a result of the historical uh, behavior of uh, Lot and his daughters. That being said, in the ancient Near East, names are not given inconsequentially or haphazardly. They are given to either indicate the hope and anticipation of the parents or the anticipation of the person's character or an identification of the person's character as seen at birth. Namely, you see that in Jacob, right? Right. Um, He's a supplanting one, as indicated by his behavior with his brother's heel. Right. Or they're given as a result of a name that God sovereignly and supernaturally um, divulges to the family. With that said, then, before they even go into this land, these young men are born, and these young men don't take wives in the land of promise. They take wives in the land of Moab. The point being, before any of this scenario of compromise or otherwise occurs, they're born with these names at birth, sickly and wasting away or sickly and pining, which may in fact suggest to us that it is not in fact the sin or the compromise of that is apparent in verses 1 through 5 that may be driving this text, but there may be something sovereign and providential in the heart and mind of God who has his invisible hands and the gloves of circumstances already at work that's going to result in a certain level of intense suffering for the greater good. I'm glad you brought that up because if you back up to their dad, Mm. their dad's name is Elimelech and his name means my God is king. Now it's interesting that, of course, he's the first person named in the story. Elimelech, my God is king. The story ends though with the birth of David, 
who is also going to be a great king. And his son, Jesus Christ, later on, the son of David, is not just my God is king, but my king is God. Yes. There's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a connection between the two. But if you look at the beginning of the story, and Elimelech having these two sons, his name is my God is king. Well, if your God is king, how come you have wasting away and sickly in your, in your midst? How come you have famine in your midst? What kind of God do you have? And, you, and there's it, – it, it raises a question. Right. Because we have been sold a bag of goods, I fear, in modernity, in modern society, yes. right? And that bag of goods is if, in fact, you have sided with God through Christ right. by means of the power, presence, and person of the Holy Spirit, that, in fact, life only gets better. Hey – Sign up right now. I sign, I'll sign up for that if if that's the you know hey, believe in Jesus and nothing bad will ever happen to you. But a lot of people have been sold that bill of goods. That is such a contradistinctive message to the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation, and I am afraid that it is a popular message, but it is hardly a biblical message. Yeah, when you think about you think about the people in Scripture who were chosen by God, who were called by God, and I think of the Apostle Paul who says, "We are shipwrecked, we are beaten, we are persecuted," and of course didn't give up. You know, uh, Jesus says, "In this life, you will experience trials, you will experience persecution," and the gospel often is presented today without, as if those were the fine print that nobody wants to read. Because because when you become a Christian, you become an enemy to the God of this world, namely Satan. Yes. And so what is often presented is, well, you know, here's a form of Christianity that allows you to um, not get your feet wet, allows you to not get hurt. You can believe in Jesus, but really, you know, the, 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 the kind of people that get persecuted for their faith, that suffer sufferings, those are for the, those are the, serious kind. They're, those are the ones who want to get their PhDs in Christianity. But you can be a Christian and not have to go through that. And that is that is not true. The, t- the truth of the matter is, when you sign up to be a follower of Christ, you take up your cross and follow him, which means you are signaling your own death. Now, the idea that is presented today that somehow you can be a believer in God and it's all going to get rosy and you'll get rich and famous and wealthy is just not true and it's not biblical. What we have here, what I love about Naomi and the book of Ruth is it's real. Okay? Sometimes, and when, we haven't gotten this far into the text, but, some, but what I love about Naomi is the fact that she is true and real with her perception of God. I went out full, I came back empty, the Lord has been bitter against me. She's being real there. I can, I can handle Naomi, and God can handle Naomi because she's not hiding behind platitudes and cliches. She's being honest with where she thinks everything's going. You're so right because the, the struggle is that if we are to honestly and genuinely adhere to Scripture. The reality is that God directs the lives of believers through different 
waters that are often difficult waters, and he does so deliberately for a greater purpose that is a kingdom purpose, and you cannot abrogate or undermine or dodge that or avoid that by superior faith. Right. In fact, greater faith may in fact allow God to trust you with more. Right. Hear now the words of Isaiah concerning Jesus Christ when he says he's a man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not just the sorrows that we depict during Passion Week. No, he has a life that is replete with sorrow. But Hebrews suggests that this is indeed, in fact, important for the priest, in fact, for the Kohen Gadol, for the high priest, right. because he can't associate with the human populi outside of what he learns in humanity by means of sorrow. And, and so in looking at this text, there's a place that sorrow plays that is holy. Right. But also there's a place that sorrow plays that is not simply holy. But within the framework of this book, what's interesting to me is that what's going to result as a as a result of or what's going to be a consequence as a result of their geographical um change right is in fact something that is anticipated in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that every nation concept, that goyim, that gentilic concept is going to be included. It's something that's going to be realized through the theological explanation of Paul in Ephesians 3, this whole one new man concept uh, in Christ Jesus. And this is not new. This is true of Rahab. This is true of Tamar. In other words, as you said, and I quote you, that Christianity or the people of God, the people of God in ancient Near East, uh, the Israeli community, the Judaic community, but Christianity in modernity, the people of God overall— has never been a closed club community, right? There's always been an anticipation of an expanse. And this expanse seems to be one of the theological threads that is woven ever so marvelously throughout the fabric of this book. And having been woven through this book, one asks, how will God get this realization to come to pass? Well, he does it through the road of suffering, right? And the fact that, and they brought up a good point, the fact that, 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 first of all, Naomi is not aware. She has no idea what God is really doing, what he is doing, not just behind the scenes, but in before her time and after her time, before this book and after this book, that will have such an impact. She has no idea her story is being written to scripture. For all she learns and uh, understands is her own immediate context, Right. She does not realize that this this woman that's going to go back with her, Ruth, this one who's from Moab, who's not part of the the people of God per se from uh, from Israel, is going to be included. Just like Boaz's mom, or his mom was Rahab, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, Rahab, who was she? Well, she was that harlot, the prostitute that that uh, helped Joshua and the guys come into the land, and she was rescued and turned to faith. In fact. You have these wonderful women, these these women who are um, um, brought in, and these these women who are not of the the 
the children of Israel and that are included in the genealogy of Jesus. And so God is at work as something such in, in such a bigger stage than her media understanding. She has no idea what's going to, how her story is going to end, though it's going to end good, which we know as looking, but she's in the midst of it. And in the midst of it, you don't see, right? In the midst of it, you don't always see what good is coming out of this. It's like when my, my, my daughter who uh, asks why she has to learn a certain math concept, how am I going to use this in life, dad? You have no idea. How am I going to use slope or y-intercept or some uh, equation she's learning? How is she going to learn that? Uh, use, how am I going to use this in life, Dad? You don't un- always understand what God uses or what God is doing and how this thing you're going through has any significance into other parts of your life. If you picture the book of Ruth as a big, the letter U, we're on the left side of the letter U going downhill fast. But there's a point where the letter U turns, right? And in the story of Ruth, it doesn't take very long in the text, though it's probably 10 plus years of her life, where there's something happens that gives a glimmer of hope. And I don't know if we want to... John, when you say that, the U, the left side of the U, yeah. takes 10 years to get down. Yes. And by the time you get down... The bottom is Naomi's statement, I'm hopeless. Right. There's nothing to look forward to. Uh, but, but the book is only comprised of 12 years. God's going to comprise the right side in two years. I'm not saying that's everybody's life, but I'm saying on the way down, it feels like you're on the way to the bottom and it's over. Right. Um, I, I, Which I, tells I, you something. Yes. That when God decides to move and act, it does not take him long. When he decides to move, he moves. In other words, the waiting on God is the hard part for us. The moving of God, well, that's the easy part for him, right? So in the text, as he, he is, she has lost her, 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 her husband, she has lost, in fact, it says in verse 4, and they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one is Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there for 10 years. That is, they lived in, uh, in Moab. And then both Malon or Machlon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Think, significant about that is that Hebrew uses the word, um, a form of the word for children as child. In other words, it's not her sons as it was back in verse 3, but now it's her children. In other words, though these are grown men who are married, to her, these are still my boys. Correct. So she still feels this impact of her loss. But verse 6 is beginning of the turning point in the story. And, of course, she has no idea. It, comes, it happens to come to her by word of mouth somehow. And it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return. Now, this is going to introduce a key concept, a key idea in this chapter. The word re- return uh, is the word shuv, which we'll say, uh, talk about in a second. She might return from the land of Moab, for she heard, she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. First sign of hope and first good news that she's heard in all these years, and it's significant. It's not good news from any other. Uh, it's not good news about some god in some other distant land. It is good news that the Lord God decided to do something, and He brings the first good things in the story. When He decides to show up on the scene, it's good. Yes, and that's significant because now she's finally hearing something good that she can respond to. It begs the question, John, 
do I need to be aware of the plan and details of God's plan in order to trust God? Whether it's good, verse 6 certainly suggests that I am Pekad. He visits to relieve and bless his people. But the inference in verse 1 is through famine he has visited in order to bring some sort of lack or discipline amongst his people. Right. But if I am under the weight of God in a manner that has resulted in suffering, or if I'm under the weight of God in a manner that has resulted or is resulting in blessing, and I neither know the extent of each of those, nor am altogether thoroughly, physically, spiritually, nor psychologically or emotively prepared for that, do I need to have God give me a detailed play-by-play of everything before I can walk forward with him? But don't we want that, though? Oh, certainly. I mean, come and think about it. We want God to show us the, the, the flight plan beforehand because we want to be able to say, no, God, I don't approve this. Yes, God, I approve that. Or we at least want to have, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like interruptions. You know, like I, in my mind, I go through my work day and I have in my mind what my day is going to look like. And of course, what usually happens is that all of my plans, all of my um, things that I wanted to get done never get done because my plans are my plans and God's plans are God's plans. And oftentimes it would be, um, it would not be good for me to see God's plans. Cause I might say, I don't understand these plans, God, how come you're doing this? How come you're doing that? This doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's because th- that those are God's plans and God's plans involve such intricacies and such beauty that we would never understand those things. So sometimes, you know, it's, um, for us to relinquish that trust to God. Can we trust God with his plans? Or do we say, God, here's my plans, take them. And that's the, that's the choice. You know, I, I, I know of, um, sometimes when, when people face harsh circumstances, whether it's a loss of family, whether it's a loss of a job or income, that they would have they thought, well, gee whiz, God, I wish you'd have told me ahead of time. And God doesn't always do that. John, if he did that, would we walk? forward? No. I I don't know that most of us would. I mean, I I admit and I confess at the same time your statement, I want to know. But the reality is what I want to know, I cannot always handle. Yeah. And and that brings up the question, can we follow God when we don't understand God? Can we follow him when he doesn't make any sense? Or when things he tells us doesn't make any sense. There are few men who can, like Rob Shaul, who would become the Apostle Paul, there are few men who in their initiated um, uh, moment with God could hear how much they are to suffer for him right? and to present his name before kings, etc., and yet say, sign me up. Right. Uh, There are few men like Peter who could hear God say in the person of the Son of God, um, when you're older, someone's going to bind you in a way that you would prefer not and lead you to an area that you would prefer not, and this is going to result in the kind of death whereby you will glorify me. We want with Peter to ask the question, well, what about the person next to me? What about John? Right. And yet... The uncompromised, indefatigable statement is that a of word? our Lord. Indefatigable. Can you spell that word for me? <laughs> 
the non-relaxed word of okay. our Lord, the relentless word of our Lord. I better my dictionary app right here on my cell phone. <laughs> is imperatival. It is imperative in its statement. Right. Follow me. Right. That, that's not See, your business. And, and that brings up the question, and you know, the, the first and most important commandment, to love the Lord your God, right, with your whole heart, soul, mind, right? The question is, can you, can, can I, can we love God when he strips us of the things we love the most? Mm. Can we love him when he stripped us of, uh, in Naomi's case, can we follow and love him when he stripped us of our husband, when he has stripped us of our children, when he has stripped us maybe of our income, maybe our house, the things that we love most dearly, can we still love and follow him despite those actions in our lives? And that's the real test. In the Hebrew text, Vayamuthu, the text starts off emphatically concerning the death of both of the young men. Right. As you said, it does not refer to them as Benu, right. my sons. My sons, yeah. It refers to them as... Yaladah, yeah, from Yalad, the child. These are my babies. Yes, and 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 here's what she says. She says, "God, these are my babies that you took." Yeah, Orpah's husband, Ruth's husband. I lost my husband. I trusted you through the waters of the loss of my provider, but you take my babies. Yeah. John, that that takes for some people, and I know I have people I know who have suffered in that way. People who have suffered by the loss of a child, the loss of a husband. That oftentimes will throw you off course in a tailspin, personally, maybe in your faith that that somehow you have gone away from God because of that tragedy happening in your life that you don't know if you can trust God because of the fact that he has stripped you of, the, of those of those things. And God knows that. He knows that there's a, 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 a Naomi in Moab because he allows that message of him doing good to his people to reach their, her ears. In other words, he has not forgotten about what you've suffered. And those scars that are in your life and in your heart that somehow you can't explain away, you can't wash away, they're there. And God knows they're there, and he knows the effects that they have done. But the story's not over yet. No, it's not. And what God decides to do in your life, though, almost like a surgeon who has to do some deep cutting, he's not done with the surgery, and he's not done with hope, with doing the work he wants to do in you. And there's a choice to be made. Will I, can I trust this God? Can I love this God despite where he's brought me? And for some people, it takes a long time. And some people, they never see, they see their way out of it because they still hold on to the past, not knowing that God was present with them in the past and God has actually brought them so far into the present and God has a plan for everything he has done in your life. That's why I think it's so essential, John, that something be said here. Because the modern Christianity that we're selling people wants to quickly move to verse 6. 
the visiting grace of God. But here's my statement. It's so essential that for people who have been pressed in the precious, dearest areas of their lives, for businessmen who have given to God and they have not indeed and in fact saw the increase, for people who have honored God in their home and yet they've lost it, for people who have honored God with their children and yet they've lost one or two, honored God in their marriage and yet there is the loss of a spouse or the impending loss of a spouse, for people who have honored God in their youth and yet their aged days are wrought with pain, soreness, loneliness, difficulty, feelings of I'm washed up, I'm used up, I'm abandoned. There is a sacred trust that must take place in the hours of suffering. There is a trust that must take place when you're on the left side of the you and all you can see from a human perspective is things going downhill. Mm. And you mustn't read through the text too quickly. For some, it's lasted for a year, some five, Naomi 10. For others, it's lasted over a decade. For some, what they've experienced in one year is the equivalent of the kind of pressure, psychological stress, and spiritual warfare that would be the equivalent of a decade. But here's the statement. You must trust God when you cannot see the good hand of God knowing that the good hand of God is there nonetheless. And God's activity toward us is always ultimately, in essence, good. Right, right. You know, what's interesting is that when she hears the first good news in the story, that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. Now, the word visited is the word pakada. It doesn't mean just to, you know, it's like show up at the hospital bed and, and say hello. It actually means that God moved, he did something for the benefit of his people. Now, this good news was good enough for to uh, help Naomi to move back home. Yes. But what's interesting is that there's a, there's a sort of a divorce in her mind. Because that good news was good enough for those people back home. But somehow she doesn't relate that or equate that to the good to the good that God is showing to her. In other words, God is good to the people back home, but he hasn't been good to me. Because when she comes back, she still has this attitude that God's against me. And sometimes, you know, when you've gone through great suffering and you hear good things that God has done, you say, well, that's good for good for them. God bless them because God has been good to them. But me, I'm the exception. Little do you know that God is still good to you as well. In fact, I think what's interesting is that when God decided to reveal who he was to Moses, and he says, the Lord, compassionate, loving, loving, you know, he's full of unkindness. He, he goes through all this you know, graciousness, loyalty, you know, uh, all this uh, description of by himself. He describes how good he is. Yes. Now, sometimes we don't see that goodness because we look for it like in the heavens. We say, well, where's the miracles that happen? Not knowing that God's goodness may be seen in through other ways. Oftentimes, God's goodness is, th- is seen through the people he's put around you. 
Naomi has no clue that the person that's going to travel with her back home, this Ruth character, is going to be the best thing that ever happened to her life. Which means this, John. We must accept good at the hand of God as he intends it and as he manifests it, not as we prefer it. Right. Nor as we would care to demand it. Right. Because sometimes the good that we think we want right. would not encompass all of the good that we actually need. Right. God knows what you need better. It's, it's kind of like when, I don't know, this is a bad, maybe a bad analogy, when, you know, young men would put together a list of the things they want in a wife and turn out that God brings somebody else into their life that wasn't on that list because God knows what they need more than what they wanted. God knows what you need. And oftentimes that's a, it's a hard thing to accept that, that our list of desires and, and wishes for God to have in our life may be against or go against his own plan and, and knowledge of what is actually the good thing we need in our life. In fact, that is not just a conceptual thought that we are uh, discussing as a result of um, this text. But it is, in fact, suggested within the text later on, uh, it is stated, not inconsequentially, by the ladies, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Yes. She's better than the two that you literally had to leave back in the land of Moab. Can you imagine when she's hearing this? She has no idea she's going to hear those words from these ladies. The ladies of the town, they're going to say, you know, this Ruth, this Ruth, uh, this daughter-in-law of yours, she's better than your, than seven sons. Now, back here in chapter one, she's not thinking that at all. She has no clue of what God has allowed in her life. In fact, um, she has she is just focusing on her loss. Um, but that's the perspective she will come to eventually. And at this point, she doesn't have that perspective. Let's continue on with with just the reading. um, In verse 6, Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that I am had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May I am deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May I am grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons— Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. 
for the hand of I am has gone forth against me. Hmm. John, in chapter 1 alone, this turn, shuv, shuv, yeah. return, is mentioned 11 times, yes. making it the pointed term of chapter 1. And the, the central point of the passage is found in this section from 11 through 13, wherein there is a hopeless sense right. by Naomi. Speak to that. Well, what's interesting about this this keyword return or to it means to turn or return can be used in both in both senses. What's interesting is that it can be she is returning to Moab or or to Judah rather, i.e., back to the land of God. And the idea of being perhaps returning back to God, let's say. But then she uses it in her conversation with this is this struck me in fact as I was thinking about it she she uses it in a way to turn her daughters to want to turn her daughters away from God in other words here she hears the she hears the the good news right God has visited his people and she responds to that good news she decides I'm going to go back in fact they it, the text indicates that they they all started out on the journey and at some point in the journey she stops and she says go back, return back to Moab, go back to your people, go back to your gods, she will tell um, uh, her daughters later on. And what's interesting is there's this, she's, she hears the good news of God demonstrating goodness to, to his people. God has been good to my people. I'm going to go back because God has visited my people. But at some point she is deciding to turn her daughter's Away from her, and the reason is not because of 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 God, but the reason is she says, "I have nothing to offer you," as if to say, "My God is good enough to visit my people to supply them food, but I'm not good enough to give you anything." She'll go away and go back to your. She is making herself the center of attention here. She doesn't say, "My God has visited my people. Come, girls, let's go back because my God is so good." I don't know if that's even crossed her mind. What she happens is she says to them, go back, go back to your mother's house, which is an indication she wants them to remarry. Okay, that's common. That's normal. At that time, if you were a woman who was a widow, um, you were then dependent on your, your, your sons to support you. And if you had no sons, you were destitute. You were in a very hard situation. So she's encouraging them practically to say, hey, go back, get married and find rest or security in your husband's house. In other words, get married and and you'll have security. I think it's interesting, John, that when you look at this text, again, in verse 6, there is an awareness that the movement, the action of the text from 6 on, is as a result of the pakad, the visitation of I am. In lieu of that visitation, Naomi sees the essentiality of an about face, right? a return as it were. This return then becomes major. She doesn't know it, but it becomes major back to a place where she's familiar, right. back to a familial religio-socio environ. But in realizing that return, she says in verse 9, may I am grant that you may find rest. This idea that there's security for you. Right. Menucha. There's there's yeah. some kind of security. You've been brushing up in her Hebrew, haven't you? 
That's very good. Menuha. Are you killing me? I'm killing <laughs> I love you. There's this sense of, of security for you here. And, and what's interesting within the framework of this security is, is this, John, is that there's specificity in that. There are Moabite men, inference, who could give you security. Right. Who could give you love. Right. Who could give you something that's specific or particular or that's recognizable. But what she begins to articulate then is the ambiguity of, of the future, but the specificity of her own plight. Namely, listen, you're going to go with me. I don't have any sons to offer. If I were to have sons, would you stay until they became older and, and inherit them in marriage and then have children? She's basically saying, my life is an apparent conglomeration of hopelessness. And if you go back to your land, you could have what appears to be hope. But isn't that, isn't that, that is such a, a disconnect? Because what you have is she recognizes that God has given her, her people the food, right? And visit the people. But then she's, she goes and says, but don't, but don't go back because I have nothing to offer you. Look at this. She's saying, I'm too old. If I had, if I got married today and had, had got pregnant today and had a child, would you wait? As if to say, she's the reason for their journey in the first place. She does not realize, in fact, Ruth will hint at this because of the fact that her commitment to her that the reason for her for her journey is not what Naomi has to offer. And that's significant, I think, in the fact that sometimes she thinks that her value to Ruth and, and Orpah is in what she can give them, right? I'm not valuable. I'm, I'm actually valueless to you because I cannot give you husbands. That's my value is in what is me being able to give you children and husbands, which I can't do. So go back. She does not realize she has something more valuable valuable. Is that a word? Valu- valu- valuable. Valuable. <laughs> she has something more valuable in her God that she is not even pointing out. And that's the thing that, that Ruth sees. And that's, I think I'm convinced that Ruth has, has, has witnessed this throughout the years of living with them. Though may, they might not have a, a, a perfect faith, though they might not have lived out perfectly uh, their dedication to God, she has witnessed this in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of all her years with them. Ruth is convinced that this God is worth going back to than going back to a secure, safe husband back in, in Moab and serving Chemosh, the, the God of Moab who you would offer your children to. And that's another story. But, but she did, Naomi has not realized that what she has to offer is not the children she has. It's the God that she has. And that's what's going to bring Ruth, Ruth back with her. John, what you just said summatively is this what a person has in their god is always greater than what they have in their situation that's tweetable you should tweet that i don't know how to do it <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that true yes no matter what circumstance you're in whether that be the utopia of human experience God is always more than what's in your bank god yes. is always more than what's in your health god is always what's more than is represented as good in your life, but contradistinctive to that, no matter how little you have, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how, how hurt you are, 
God is greater than your situation. Right. I, I think it's interesting in this text, John, that she's saying return. And, and I want to take this microcosmic, this small picture, and see therein a macrocosmic, a large picture concept, if you will. And that is, isn't this the plight of the believer? There is this specificity that the world offers us. There is this, I will give you what appears to be security if you'll just turn the wrong direction. I'll give you what appears to be um, um, hope. But what does I am offer on the other side of that or opposite of that? Well, often the road is thin. It's, it's craggy, it's, it's difficult, it's arduous, as it were. And in its precariousness, if you will, it's also ambiguous. God doesn't always say to us, come with me and I'll give you this, this, that, right. or the other. Right. Sometimes... That's what the devil does. Yes. If you bow, bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, as he says to Jesus. Right? The temptation. He'll give you the those X, Y, Z, the the exact game plan that you want to see. So so let's have that discussion, John. What happens when our adversary seems to be clearer and temporarily at least more hopeful than our God and the walk that he invites us to? Because the adversary offers us a very specific uh, path, no cross, no road. And Jesus, wouldn't you know it, is such a daring teacher that he says, if you would follow me, take up the very symbol that in the first century represented the most horrendous, insidious death and right. embarrassment. Take that and follow me. Right. And follow you where? I don't know. Right. Well, isn't that what people want, though? You know, people who are seeking for, you know, what is God's will for my life? Right. And they want God to, to give them the, the, the 10 point uh, bullet point plan for their life. And not knowing that God, think about a shepherd. Oftentimes he leads you through fields where there is no path. Where he says, let's take this way today. Let's go this direction. And you as a sheep, hopefully trust your shepherd to follow where maybe in places and areas that he has not, you have never envisioned. Now think about this. Those of you who are, who are believers and you think back in your life where God has brought you. You would not you would not have imagined how God has brought you thus far and then the way he brought you. I'm looking at my own life and it's like there's no way a few years ago, ten years ago, how many years ago, would I have envisioned what God has brought me through and 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 to and what he's done in my life. That is something more beautiful than if I knew it ahead of time and was uh, wanting to object to it. God is more mysterious than that. When he led the children of Israel out of Egypt and, he, and they were wandering, so to speak, right? they could have went in a straight line, right? But he just, they, didn't want, they wandered. We know why, why they wandered. But it was the fact that God was with them. In other words, he is the I am. Whatever direction he leads you to, he's still the I am. You don't have to know the course because whether you knew the course or not doesn't change the fact that he's still the I am. The straightest past, pass and path for the believer 
is the sovereign path. Mm. It, it, it's the Savior's path. And think about this. Here, God is going to lead Naomi in her life, and she has no clue. She has no idea that her story, what God is going to do in her life, is not going to impact her own life immediately with the birth of of Obed, but who Obed's going to give birth to, Jesse, and then David, and then who David's going to give birth to later on in Jesus. She has no idea that she is part of the messianic line and that what God is doing in her life and what God often does in our lives, think about this. When God does something in your life, the ripple effect and the 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 uh, the the goal is not just to reach you. The goal is not just to impact you in your immediate time on this earth. The goal is to have such a ripple effect that generations past you will look back on what God did at your life and say, here's where God decided to visit my people. And, and you think about the things that God has brought you through and what he's going to bring you through. Realize that oftentimes it is because God is writing a bigger story for generations to come that your experiences necessitate the hand of God, the move of God, and sometimes the, tr- the trials and tragedies of God for the purpose of affecting future generations for the Lord. David will look back and say, my heritage is such that I have in my family this woman from Moab named Ruth and Naomi who faced incredible circumstances, but God showed himself faithful. And I can ask my, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, what it was like and be affected. Naomi has no idea at this point. And oftentimes we don't know that the, that the, that the impact of our story, I have no idea what God's going to do through my kids and my grandkids or people that I've talked to. All I know is that, is that he, if he's, he has shown himself faithful to me and I would never have been able to write the script if I had tried ahead of time the script that God has written for my life. And the same thing with the believer. You know, John, I think it's so essential because when you look at these verses, and we'll certainly come back here next week, but... In verse 14, here's Orpah. She's listening to her mother-in-law. And what does she say? She says, um, thank you. She kisses her, expression of love and devotion, and then she turns for Ruth. The text says in verse 14, she clung to her, by the way, the same Hebrew term that's used in the Echad Bashar, the one flesh passage in Genesis 2, 24, 25. She clings. She remains with her. This is what I think is important. Throughout life's difficult road, we will be walked through many a hard way with the Master wherein we will be reminded that we are the sheep and he is the shepherd. And sometimes that road will involve a valley whose shadows comprise some semblance of death. We must cling to him for he clings to us in those moments he is with us. And we must 
desperately avoid the tintillating temptation to fall in love with the specificity which the world offers. Comfort, security. We must find ourselves ever woven, ever cuddled in the hands of a God who, albeit, he will walk us down a road that involves Christian ambiguity, not in its message, but in its walk of faith. He will nonetheless never leave us, never forsake us. He will indeed and in fact be with us until the end. I hope and pray that someone who is struggling with the ambiguity of a life with Christ will see it far greater than the specificity of a life of darkness wherein the Savior's footsteps are not found. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.